0: First of all, my wife and I would like to express our deepest gratitude to being here, and um, uh, we could easily move here. Um, it would just would probably be a pain in your neck, so we probably shouldn't do that. But anyway, we could easily move here, right? Yeah. Do, it. yeah, do it, yeah. I have to bring my kids, my father-in-law, my parents, the cats and the dogs. Are you up for that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 <These> two. All <laughs> right. That's good. I want to uh, I want to begin this last session, which obviously will be our text will be from the book of Revelation about worship. But I'd like to to recap what we've done by introducing a story to you that comes from the life of who do you think I'm going to talk about? Gracie, of course, our little six year old. She um, it's funny uh, to the brothers that speak. Um, my children over the years have said such profound things, when especially when they're young, and uh, and the, the, it actually possesses really great theology. And one of them was when William wanted me to have a gift for Father's Day. You know, I just thought about a gift. That's what David did. You know, I'd like to give you a gift too. You know, uh, but uh, Gracie says said several things which are very profound. And one of them was the was when she had a. I think, what do you call those, the snow glow thing? You shake it, and the snow thing, you know, it's everywhere. And you look at it, oh, wow. She had one of those, it, it broke, you know. And so I was out in Yosemite. They have a the California believers out there, they have a conference at Yosemite. What a place. All right, you go out there, you camp, and uh, then they have meetings a couple times a day. And guess what you do the rest of the day? You hike, you know. And uh, so they, they have a little amphitheater, and, and the... Audiences in front of you and behind you are these super tall pine trees and half-dome, granite-faced rock right there. You just feel like, wow, how does it get better than that? You know, that kind of thing. And so uh, so we're out there and, and I, uh, she wasn't with me, so I bought her a, a snow glow replacement. And I took it home to her and I brought it in. I said, Gracie, and she's hugging on me. And I, get, I said, I got you a present. And I showed her what I got her. And I said, oh, Daddy, I love it. And she uh slept with it, she brushed her teeth with it, she you know took it to chapel, she took it to to uh, wherever she went to the store. She took the snow glow, and uh, she really loved it a couple months later i, I was it was uh, when I was working regularly I, I came home and pretty exhausted from that particular e r shift and I was just kind of laying down on the couch where half your body's off, off the couch, and your torso is sort of as flat as you can go. and and she's playing around my feet with this snow glow. And she's just shaking it and just having a, you know, like she's talking to it or something. She's kind of play. It. And then she goes, Daddy, you like my snow glow? I said, I sure do. I got that for you. Yeah, I know, Daddy. So she's playing. I'm sort of half asleep. And then the next thing I know, I'm startled awake to feel the weight of that thing on my chest. And I, 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 I look at her and she's just right there playing. And I look at this thing and I said, Sweetheart. I got your snow glow, don't you like it? Oh, daddy, I love it. I just love you more. Yeah. You know, when we talk about worshiping the Lord in the New Testament for sure, I really think that captures what it's about, don't you think? When we discussed worship in terms of its definitions on Friday, we we looked at it in terms of the Hebrew word, the root word, to bow and And the idea of lowering yourself. But recognize, uh, excuse me, and then in the New Testament, we talked about how it's attached to this maybe a a gesture of affection um, that is more than just a simple token of respect. But according to the passages we looked at, there's a real sense of heartfelt adoration. And And I think that little theology she was demonstrating to me really bespeaks of what worship is for the New Testament believer. I believe, I think that, that captures the thought that it's a heart response to the Lord. Now, obviously, when we want to respond in the way that he would like us to respond, right? We, we want to give him the right affection that would please him the most. That's the point. Thus, we looked at the um, Passages in the Old Testament, briefly, we didn't really do much justice to the survey of the Old Testament, but we saw some truth in Job's life, where Job worshipped not because of his benefits, but because of the person of God. Remember, he lost everything. We saw worship as if echoed in those altars that were repetitively built, sacrificially giving, without question to the Lord. We saw with great focus in Abraham's life all the elements that were there. We saw the heart of God, no doubt, But we saw Abraham responding, didn't we? We saw his obedience. We saw his voluntary efforts. We saw his commitments, his dependency by faith and the, and the deliverance of his son. We saw the sacrifice. We saw so many facets. This must be what makes up worship. He even said, the lad and I will go yonder and return, will worship and return and so we, we began to have, a, you know, start to see some color fill in the picture, didn't we? And then we turned our eyes to the New Testament yesterday and we, we looked at that famous. It's really the only significant didactic portion that talks about worship in the New Testament where we, we see that he is actually expecting a response of worship, isn't he? We it's just you Jews say we should worship there. We on this mountain ought to. Work. The Lord didn't refute the necessity of worship; He was changing the paradigm of externals, of that which is uh, by the Jewish um, ideas of ornate uh, robes and stones and physical sacrifices, and also refuting false worship like the Samaritans. That tells us a couple of things not about falseness and it's not about being really external. It's about a matter of the soul. He says it this way. It's done in spirit and in truth. And we talked about the sincerity, excuse me, the spirit, that is uh, God communing with our spirit. This whole idea of the, the, the sincerity of our heart. And then the filling, the the working, the interweaving of God within each living stone, as it were. The The Spirit of God connecting us and stringing our thoughts. Did you notice that happened in our collective worship today? Did you notice that? As far as I know, I called no one about the Passover. I called no one about the passage that our brother shared this morning. I was already there. We call that the interworking of the Spirit of God. He is our worship leader, isn't he? And he's good. Really good. I've seen it in so many ways and so many times. And then he talks about in truth, not only according to the truth of God's word. That's very important. We don't want to say that which is false, that which is uh, tainted, that which is uh, uh, diminishing his glory. Sometimes we'll do that unbeknownst to ourselves. and, And one of us will come alongside and say, hey, you know, that might have been a little off. Actually, I did that yesterday, believe it or not. When I was teaching, and I confess to you that I got my wells mixed up. I mentioned something about Jacob's well, and I was wrong. I hate it when I'm wrong. Don't you hate that? Okay, men, do you ever hate it when you're driving, your family's in the car and you go the wrong way? Yes, that's how it was yesterday for me, and i I apologize. But we hate we we want according to the truth, and not just the truth of what is stated, the statements, but the person of Jesus Christ. Then he has certain uh, 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 characteristics about him that, that describe him. And we just sang of one about the mercy of God. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do this, but it's interesting if you trace the word mercy and its associated concepts throughout the entire scriptures, especially in the teachings of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, the most common word used to translate mercy is said hesed, h-e-s-e-d is the transliteration, and there's a lot of papers written on that word, going back to the 1900s if you can find them. Those papers have a so a whole history of tracing the the meaning of this word. But but the New Testament translations and the excuse me the Old Testament translations will just translate it as loving kindness. And also the word mercy. And so when that psalm comes up where it says the mercy of the Lord endures forever, you know, the, that repetitively spoken, that's the word has said, the mercy of God. This idea that God exercises himself to a situation that demands compassion and cannot be obtained any other way except from an external source. That's mercy, right? That's how our God thinks. If you read, I think it's in Micah or Malachi, it's one of the Yim books, I can't remember. And, and it says that God delights in showing mercy. I want to ask you something, what do you delight in? I know my brother delights in golf, right? I delight in photography, I delight in Mrs. Wonderful, I delight in my kids, I delight in little Gracie, I even delight in the dogs in our house and somewhat the cat's. But let me tell you, when God delights in something, he delights to show mercy. You know what that means? It means he's looking around the planet trying to find the places that need mercy. I don't do that. I look around the planet seeing where I find my comfort. God looks around the place. How do I know? That's how the Lord Jesus taught. When he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, it ends with the phrase, and which one showed him mercy? That's the Lord Jesus, the heart of God, saying, "I." this scenario teaches you something about who's your neighbor, but don't forget, there's a merciful act going on here. That's how I think. That's how I operate. And let me tell you something, your Good Samaritan is Jesus Christ, okay? You were found on the road, dead. And the Savior comes along, he finds you. He puts oil on you. He puts you on his animal. He carries you to the place of safety. You, that's your good Samaritan, and he's showing you mercy when you couldn't do it yourself. That's the, the, the person of Jesus Christ. And when we start to think about him and look at him from those angles, when, he, when, we, when the brother shared about, uh, I think it was you, John, shared about uh, the, the leper and the touch Touch of God. I, I, I traced that that idea while you were well while you were talking. <laughs> I traced that real quickly. You know the times that, G, that Jesus Christ touched someone. Where's the coffin? He touched the coffin. He touched the eyes. He, he 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 touched by healing on multiple occasions. What did that mean? The the hand of God touching decrepit, ruined humanity. That's God reaching out. Not afraid to touch you. Let me tell you something. You come into my ER and I put on four pairs of gloves, you're probably going to die. I don't want whatever you got, right? God, he just reaches out, sin, disease, and everything, just touches. Oh, man, that's how God thinks. When we worship, when we echo, when we declare his worth and value is the old English term, when we declare that, we're declaring it according to the truth of his personhood. That he operates a certain way. He doesn't doesn't break a bruised reed. Aren't you glad? What does that mean? That means you've got a, a little stalk out there. And, and you know how it's kind of hollow. And one side is crinkled. And so it's sort of bent over. Not torn in two. but just And you know it's survivable if you're tender with it. And he's saying I'm the kind of person that is gentle enough to take what is nearly gone and make it well. That's how God thinks. I love that because I'm a bruised reed and he came around to my life and he does so even as a, a Christian today. And he fixes my brokenness. I tell, I'm tell, i telling you, this is worship. When we recognize his person, recognize his truth, it overwhelms the soul and there's a response it should be. And the response is not, let's go have another good time. The response is, you are worthy to receive glory and power and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what this is about. And when we get to the book of Revelation, just another hour or so, you're going to see a continuous responsiveness of those characters and individuals in heaven. So I wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about that. We talked about the responsiveness yesterday of the woman who went to Simon's house and how she was expressing her love. She loves much. The Lord Jesus saw that. Not only did He know her sins, which were many, but He knew her love, which was great. That's what He was pointing out. And He received it. He accepted it. Oh, saints, that's what He's after from us. And we saw how the other two, other two episodes of anointing, one uh, both of in, in Bethany, one of his feet and one of his head, one was done because she did what she could have done. She, she couldn't do much, but she could do this. And the Lord Jesus said, I love that. You got two mites? I love the two mites. That to me is a fortune. That's kind of the, the mentality of God, isn't it? And then this understanding, uh, the the lady that anointed him was Mary. She understood this was going to be his burial. That means so much to the Savior. How much does it mean to you when your children are in an event and it's sort of a, a, a little bit of a celebration or a little bit of a, a, a last meal together and they understand the significance of the hour and they see the effort that you put into it. They see the pain that you went through to make it possible and they express to you that appreciation. Does that not mean something to you? And if it not means something to us, us being evil as Jesus would say, does it not mean more to the Heavenly Father? And the answer is Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is worship? It's a heartfelt response to the movement of God within our souls that comes out in a way that pleases Him because it's matching perfectly the manner in which He desires to be worshipped. That's what it is. All right, let's turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation here has... um, How's the word that, that we've been talking about? Now I need to get my Bible working here. I'm so embarrassed I usually never use an iPad to preach from, but I misplaced in the last few weeks this really nice Bible, and I feel terrible about it. It was a gift, and I I, I just I can't find it, and I just asked the Lord, Lord, um, I know it's your word and everything, but can I have a copy? He said, use your iPad. I said, Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, the word worship in the book of Revelation, is, I mentioned yesterday or Friday, I can't remember which one, uh, that uh, out of the roughly 60 times that the word is used in the New Testament, the greatest concentration of the word's usage is in six verses, which is in the book of John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. But the book that has the greatest number of usages in in, in its text is the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation has about 24 or so usages, and about half of them deal with the worship of God himself. About another half of them deal, or ten of them deal, with the worship of the beast or angelic hosts or demons. And then there's one unique usage of, in chapter 3, verse 9, talking about the worship of men. It's referencing a church in which those who were, who were persecuting would come back and worship uh, the right way. And then, of course, there's two specific ones that are of worship, but not of evil angels, but it was John bowing down to the angel of the Lord who was communicating. Now, uh, if you look with me, and uh, this is just introduction, chapter 19 and verse 10. Let's do that real quickly. Chapter 19 and verse 10. Uh, let's read verse 9 for the context he says, then he said to me, that's the angel who's talking to John, the writer. Write, blessed are those who call, who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. That's the angel speaking. And now John responds, I fell at his feet to worship the angel. And I love this part. But he said to me, don't do that. right? See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have testimony of Jesus, I am on the same level as you. I speak of the great Lord Jesus that you speak of. You don't worship me; we're equivalent. You worship someone's greater. And notice what he says: worship God. Now, that's not just said to John; that's said to all of us, isn't it? We're not worshiping our our method of practice, are we? It's a good method; I believe in it, but it's. Not what we worship. We don't worship our families. We don't worship our children. Sorry, guys. We don't worship uh, 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 our service. We worship God. Make no mistake. Don't get distracted. Don't miss the mark. We're worshiping God, not an angel, not some other thing. Now, this is not the only time this happened. Look in, in chapter 28 and verse 8. It says that there, John's doing the same thing again. Verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. I could understand it. Very, very impressive revelation overwhelming the soul. I mean, what would you do? You're overwhelmed by that. You fall down. You want to You want to express the right response. Then he said to me, See that you don't do that. It says it now twice, isn't it? He says that for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, of the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. You want to worship somebody? You worship God. Now, if he's telling John that, what do you think he's telling us today? The New Testament believers who are charged to be priests or workers in the house of God, as he's telling us to worship God. It's not just something we do as a hobby. It's not something we do when we have time. It's not something that we do because it's convenient. It's what we do because we are the children of God and the children glory in their Father. And when you glory in your Father, you worship your Father. I'll never forget the day I took my little girl. We were, at that time, well before we started to homeschool, we took her to Montessori. I don't even know what that was. Some French thing. And so we went to it and they were teaching she's five years old and it was Show Off Your Dad Day. And so my little girl says, Daddy, would you come and, and, and tell us what you do? I said, Sure. So I you know, I'm going to the five year old class, so you know what I do? I starch my white coat and make sure my bright red letters are as bright as they could be. It was Steve Price M D F A C E P D U M B. You know? Did you get it? Did you get it? Can't say it again. So I go in <laughs> I go in there, I got my doctor's bag, I got my pristine white coat, I could hardly move, you know, I get over there and there's a fireman and a police like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, you doing? yeah I can't move, how you doing? Yeah, you got a big chest, yeah. And so I, it's my turn. I put it up there and I put my bag, you know, very dramatically, I'm never dramatic, I put it up there, boom, and I open it up, it's like Mary Poppins' bag, you know, I'm pulling out... Stethoscopes that are about three miles long, and and blood pressure cuffs, and and tongue depressors, and syringes that look like you'd use. And, I, and all the kids, wow. And I look in the back row, and there's my little girl. She's on the chair, jumping up and down, like this, like this. Show them some more. Show them some more. And then I saw her go like this. <laughs> You know what she was saying? That's my dad right there, baby. Oh, dad. Okay, that's what she was doing, right? You see, the children glory in their father. We have a heavenly father. I'm not saying we need to jump on the chair and say, that's my dad. I'm trying to communicate the spirit of what's involved. Worship God. Saints, we have a heavenly Father. He's really, really an outstanding Father. In fact, he's the best in his class. And many of us will treat him treat him like he's a servant to us. Many of us will treat him as if he's someone we need to negotiate with. Sometimes we'll treat him as if he is as faulty a faulty memory and needs to be reminded. Sometimes we'll treat him as if he's our enemy. All those things are the opposite of worship. And guess who enjoys the opposite of worship? The enemy of Jesus Christ, Satan himself. If there's anybody, there's anybody that should understand the right response to the Father in heaven, it's his children, is it not? And we need to be those children. All right, let's get going here. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and i just used to use up half an hour in introduction. That's pretty sad. I have broken multiple homiletical rules. All right. Now, having said that, let's go over to chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, and that'll be our chapter 4 and 5 will be our main text for this next section. Now what I'm going to do here is I, I need to give you just a slight background of the book of Revelation, and it has to be quite brief. So John was uh, banished to the island of Patmos. Island of Patmos is there today. There's actually a city there, and you guessed it, there is a church celebrating John the ba- John the Apostle's presence on the island. And uh, uh, there there is a there's a there, while he was banished there. The, the church history says he was banished because of some persecution he suffered. And and it's a little hard to understand, you know, was it Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about in a vat of oil? I mean, usually you'd die after that. But anyway, he was apparently grossly disfigured on the island. Eventually went to, apparently went to Ephesus. When we say church history says, that means we really don't know. But that's what tradition says. And so, uh, but John was here. While he was there, uh, the Lord gave him a revelation. And the revelation that was given was uh, encountered the times uh, both then and that which is to come, and that's a pretty important thing to understand. And so, the book of Revelation has the first three chapters that, first of all, deal with the person of Jesus Christ and his and 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 his stature and his standing as uh, as really like the high priest of the church, uh, dressed in such clothes. How he manages the churches, and then we have a, a kind of a break in the action where John is translated up to heaven, and we have the bulk of the rest of Revelation describing what many would call the tribulation period. Now, if you're not familiar with end-time events, this is basically how it works out according to my view, but I think it's biblical or a dispensational view, and it goes like this. We are in the church age. Christ died and rose again. We're in the church age. And there will come a point when the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and he will come to the clouds. And it's a very specific term in the Greek, the clouds. And it says that He will, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord. In fact, it says it this way in Thessalonians, and so we will forever, I like that one, be with the Lord. Now then, what happens next is we're up in the, in the heavens celebrating what some would call the marriage supper of the Lamb, including uh, what looks to be uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Not a judgment for your sins, because that was taken care of at Mount Calvary. But it's a judgment for your deeds, whether good or bad, so to speak, or uh, 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 the, the reckoning of, of crowns, as it were. Now, while that's happening in heaven, there's a lot of things happening on the earth. And what are those things? Well, it's seven years of various both natural and supernatural events, most of them catastrophic. It appears that in the first three and a half years of those uh, seven, it's relatively peaceful. And in fact, it looks quite promising as somehow there appears to be peace really in the uh the hotbed of all world turmoil, which is the Middle East. But in the middle of that seven-year period, that is after three and a half years, things really go bad. And it goes bad on a global scale. These passages that I'm referring to in a quick fashion are, are recorded for you in the book of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25, the book of Daniel, most of Daniel, by the way, but especially chapter 9, and then, of course, the book of Revelation and some in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but mostly those books, right? And so what happens is the book of Revelation is giving you the events that will happen to the earth during uh, uh, the seven-year uh Tribulation, but specifically the last three years, it has a great deal of focus there. Now, when we, when John is translated up into heaven, he is shown various things. Now, the book of Revelation in general has a lot of symbolism. How do I know that? Because he actually says so. The seven stars are the seven, you know, are the lampstands are the seven churches, the seven stars, and you know, he labels what things are. That's the that's the essence of symbolism. Something stands for something else. And so you have to approach it with that symbolism involved and you let the scriptures define what the symbols are. So you don't read into it. You don't read out of it. Whatever it says it is, that's it. And you go with it. Now, when you get to chapter four, we're freshly into heaven and, and John is just, just being shown a few things. Now, let's read in verse one. After these things, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was a trumpet speaking with me. That freaked me out. A trumpet speaking with me. Come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. What was what was what just happened? That was the discussion of the seven churches. You know, Ephesus all the way through Laodicea. That's our our domain, by the way. If you've never done this, I would encourage you, maybe as an assembly or maybe as an individual, but when we were struggling in our church, in our assembly many years ago, we decided to do a, a series as, and just pretend, not really pretend, but, but imagine that those letters were written, every one of them, to our church called the Bible Chapel of Shawnee. And Let me tell you something, that changed our lives. I gave most of them, and some ones I didn't give, I eventually studied and gave them somewhere. And and, and that so riveted me. I, I could give you the message on the Church of Ephesus right now. I mean, that's how riveting it was to my soul. Steve, you love me like I'm only one of your important loves, not the most important love. I'm prominent in your love, but not preeminent in your love. Oh, wow, that hit me between the eyes. That's worth your effort. It's worth your trial. It's worth your study. All right, so he says, after these things, he says, after the church age seems to have closure. Now, having said that, he says, come up here. I'll show you what will happen. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, which seems to be the, the conduit of translation. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Okay, so now that's talking about God. And he who sat there was like Jasper and a Sardis stone. Those have images to the high priest uh, stones that he carried. you know, was the first one and the last one. And it says, uh, and there was a rainbow around the throne. That has to deal with Noah, the promise. I won't judge the earth by a flood again. He's keeping his promise. And the appearance, like an emerald and around the throne, were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders. Now look how they were clothed. They were sitting on the thrones, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. The word crowns is Stephanos. Not not the diadem, you know, like the king one. This is the one you get from the Olympic Games. This is the same one that he talks about, that you'll receive uh, the crown because you love is appearing or you're, you're, you're successful in temptation and that kind of stuff. He says they were wearing those kinds of crowns. So it makes sense that perhaps, I can't prove it fully, but perhaps these 24 elders actually represent those who have been born again in the church age. Some writers would say, oh, that includes the Old Testament saints. I'm not going to argue about it. I just think they're people that have, from another dispensation that know the Lord by faith. That's what I think. Now, notice, now don't, don't argue with me about their identity because that's not germane to the topic. What's important is their activity, their responsiveness. That's what's important. So here we go, clothed in white robes, gold crowns of gold on their head, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Now that sounds like Mount Sinai, doesn't it? You look back at Mount Sinai, there was lightnings and thunders and voices and fire and smoke, and and you were they were all petrified. He's saying the presence of God was like that of Mount Sinai. The presence of God is here. You would recognize that, John, knowing your Old Testament. Seven, fi- seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What does that talk about? That means that God has a way of permeating every facet of human existence in any form necessary. It's his, perfect, uh, uh, it's his perfect ability to infiltrate all facets of life and existence. That's what he's saying. Seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. What does that mean? Very calm, not tumultuous, like crystal clear glass on the top. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne are four living creatures. Four living creatures. Have they ever been in the Bible before? Yes. Isaiah. Ezekiel. That's Mike Atwood's pronunciation. He always says, turn to the book of Isaiah. I said, Mike, that's not the Queen's English, buddy. He doesn't like that. I don't care. And in the midst of the throne and on the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like a a calf. And the third uh, like the face of a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. What is that talking about? These are angelic hosts. They're kind of odd to me. Eyes front and back. That just kind of gives me the shivers. But... Yet, outside of those eyes, there are physical features that look like certain animals. Some say, I agree with it, that they reflect the different facets of the Lord Jesus as echoed in the Gospels. Uh, uh, For example, the eagle, representing the deity of the Lord Jesus, talked about and featured by the Gospel writer John himself. It's not a bad comparison. In fact, I think it has a lot of validity. Again, some conjecture, but reasonable conjecture. Each having six wings full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest. Don't get caught up in their appearance. Get caught up in what they're doing. What did they do? It seems like they chanted. It says, day and night, they would say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What are they doing? you ever gone into an office building and you get on the elevator and you hear elevator music? You know, they play this, like, from the 19-whatevers, and it just kind of keeps going on. And, you, and if you stay on that elevator all day, it keeps playing. It's like just running through your brain, you know, something by Captain and Tennille or whatever, you know, for those of us who know who they are. <laughs> now, here's the point. That, on that elevator thing, that's always, it's always in the background, always there. It's always in the background of every ear in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Those are particular terms that refer to His power, His strength, and His majesty. You're never going to be without that in heaven. You're always going to be reminded of this in heaven. And then you're going to be reminded of something that is so unique who was and is and is to come. Do you know what that means? He's in every tense of every movement of human existence. He's in the past, he's in the present, and he's in the future. You and I, we have to exist only in one tense at a time, either yesterday, today, or tomorrow. But you ever met anybody that can exist in all three tenses at the same time and be valid and real simultaneously? And the answer is that's God. How How does he do that? Because he invented time. When it says in the the creation that in the book of Genesis, he says in the evening and the morning was the first day, God invented evening and morning. When it says he put the stars in heaven to to govern the seasons, that's inventing time. Thus, if you invented time, that means you existed outside of time. And that means that you have a superseding sovereignty over the whole existence of space and time. And this is what they're saying. This is what they're reminding us. That our God has this ability to exist outside of time can enter into finite time as He did in Jesus Christ, and in His being God, He can therefore remedy the situation of those confound, confined by space and time. It's really beautiful, actually. Now, that's what they were doing. Now, what I want you to see here—boy, we'll never get through this. I'm, I'm sorry. I want you to see the scope of worship. All right. It's the scope of worship. And it begins for us roughly in verse ten. Eh, I gotta read nine. Whenever the living creatures, out of those guys with the eyes back and forth, right, would give glory and honor and thanks. So it appears that they're always doing this sort of chanting thing, that you know, reminding of the person of God. And then for some reason, they seem to have a special time, a special moment when they're giving specific glory and honor, it seems to be a unique moment because the, el- the elders respond to it. And, and, and whenever they did this in Thanksgiving, the 24 elders who seem to be representatives of at least you and I at the bare minimum, what did they do? Now notice, it says in verse 10, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, very key, ever and ever, and cast their Stephanos, their crowns, Before the throne saying, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and and by your will they exist and were created. So what what are they saying there? I'm going to get into the statements in just a second. What I want you simply to notice is that the 24 elders, which seem to represent believers, at least of this dispensation and, and previous dispensations perhaps, are responsive. Now notice the next scope. Look at chapter five and verse eleven. When we get into chapter five, it, it talks about uh, where there's a, a seven, there's this document and it's sealed and it needs to be opened, but it can't be opened by anybody. It has to be opened by a unique individual who's who has the credentials uh, uh, to to open this document. And and John thought there was no one to open it. And somebody said, Oh no no, don't don't weep, brother. There is someone who's worthy to open it. He's the lion, the tribe of Judah. I'm expecting him to describe a majestic, muscled person. And it says he turns and he looks at the throne and he says he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. Saints, listen. When you get to glory, the one thing you'll never lose sight of is the lamb that was slain. Every time worship breaks out in the book of Revelation, it almost always mentions, it, mentions about the Lamb that was slain or the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form. It's beautiful. Now, when that happens, we come to this point where they took the scroll, verse eight. Uh, my ch- yeah, verse 8, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Now 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 notice here that we have twenty four elders and the four living creatures now singing. Okay? First it seemed to be just the twenty four elders. Now we've expanded it to the four heralds of the holiness of God in heaven. All right, that's one that's the second scope. So it just broadened a little bit to include more. Now let's go on to the next statement, and it'll be for us in uh uh, chapter, uh, uh, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the thrones, uh, around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. So we were just the elders, now we have the living creatures and now we have a host of angelic beings. How many? Well, glad you asked. The number was 10,000 times 10,000, right? What is that? A hundred million. Hundred million. Okay. A hundred million! Okay. That's a lot, exactly. So what's happening here is the twenty-four elders fall to worship, and then the next thing you know, we have four living creatures that join you, and then the next thing you know, you've got the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures, and you got a hundred million angels at least in the background. Exactly. Now we're not going to be a hundred million, but if you could go to rise up, I'd like to get a thousand. And we should sing it as well with my soul. Now that's really pretty. Okay, back to forget the commercial, back to where we were. Okay. So, this is amazing. The scope of worship just gets broader and broader and broader in heaven. That's what's happening here. And you and I, while we sit in our little finite moment in history on this planet in 2017, we're part, I believe, of those 24 elders. And what he's telling us to do is don't lose, don't lose sight of the magnitude of all the praise and adoration that will go to God in heaven. Through Jesus Christ. Don't lose fact, don't lose sight of that. That this is just the beginning. This is just the start of what should be done. Do you remember what happened? Satan had a coup attempt. And his attempt was to steal the throne. The angelic hosts were there. Some would say, probably with great credibility, that when he fell, he took a third of the angelic hosts with him. It actually comes from the book of Revelation. But you see, he he took many with him because he was a coup attempt to steal the throne. What do you do when you steal the throne? You steal the worship of God. You steal the glory of God. All that, at least a third of the angelic host perhaps saw it all, followed Satan. And what do you do? You're banished to a place. It's called earth. Somehow between when man was created and Seth was born, it appears that this thing happened and there was Satan banished to earth. And what does he do? If I can't steal the glory of heaven, I'll steal the glory of God that's on the planet. And who's in the image of the glory of God? Man. Now, it's one thing if you can lie to him and get him to come to your side. That worked with Eve. But if I can get you to come to my side because you want to, that's a double win in it? right? The spouse is unfaithful because they've been tricked, that's one thing. But if the spouse says, I don't love you anymore, that hurts more, doesn't it? What do you think? It hurt the heart of God to see man make that decision. And the rest of the human drama is God infiltrating man's space and time and writing that equation. And when he's done, he will declare not only to the entire human race but to all of the angelic hosts who witnessed this coup attempt that the real truth is that God is exactly who he says he is and has the rightful place to be worshipped and Satan was wrong. I'm sorry, I get kind of excited about this. Got calm down, my wife tells me to quit yelling at you. Okay, so here's, here's the point. We get to heaven and now we get to actually see it. We actually get to go, wow, this is what it's supposed to look like. And the angelic hosts are doing what they saw. And they actually get this one. They're actually watching us right now, according to 1 Corinthians 11, and to see if we actually get it right. That we understand the gravity, the magnitude, the scope of this thing. By the way, that's, that's what the head covering's about. It says, it says this, and because of the angels, a symbol of authority. What do you think is a symbol of authority to show the women that they're are you kidding me? What it is, is it's showing the angelic hosts that there was an authority that was a breach by the angelic host and that those who are lesser than angels actually understand the concept. And we're not rebelling against it. See that? That's what it's about. We get it all messed up and we call it all kinds of words. I'm telling you, this is a huge theme. And it's the big one. You ever go to lit class, literature class, and you read the dumb book? You know, the book, oh, good grief. You read those things and they say, what's the theme? I go, I don't know. I couldn't even get through the first chapter. <laughs> All right, now we're in the Bible. And you to got to ask the question, what's the theme? The answer is, I don't know. The answer is, your Glory. Your glory. And there will be a day when it won't just be a man. It'll be unique angelic host. No, no. All the angelic hosts. And they'll witness for once and for all the right path of God, which Satan, Lucifer, the cherub of chief, the chief of cherubs, tried to, to rebel against. Some have said, and it's probably true, that he was really trying to take out the person of Jesus Christ, in a sense. You get a hint of that when he tempted the Lord Jesus on the earth. It's very personal and it was very personal interaction there. Man, I'm telling you, when that day comes, all the angelic hosts will say, ah, this is right. Praise God of all. And we'll be right there. Those who are made lower than angels will understand what the angels saw. I love it. Okay. So that's the scope. Let's go on to, to uh, oh yeah, verse 13. I forgot this one. How could I forget it? Then every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, as such are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. And guess what they were doing? You guessed it. Verse 14, they were worshiping again. So this is how it goes. This telescope goes this way. 24 elders, 4 living creatures and 24 elders. 4 living creatures, 24 elders and 100 million. And then we have all of life on the planet. So whether it be heavenly or whether it be earthly, Everybody's involved. In that verse right there, the one I read in, in, in verse uh, where is it, Verse 13, sounds, uh, excuse me, verse uh, yeah 13. sounds very strangely familiar to Philippians chapter two, verses nine and 10, when he says, "And God has raised him up and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven or earth or under the earth." He saying, all created, all created beings will follow too. You know, the, the truth is is that every creature will worship God whether, whether you think He's God today or not. I don't, I don't mean to be brutal to you, but you're on the losing side of the equation if you think God is just a figment of man's emotional imagination. Because there, there is coming a day based on the authority of what has been written in the Bible in which every tongue, every knee, every heart will bow whether you think you're right or not. I would like to encourage you. Why don't you rethink your thinking? Paul said it this way. Repent of your thinking and order your mind according to the truth of what God has said. There is a day coming and the day is now where we will worship that way, right? Okay, so that's the scope. Let's look at some of the statements before we run out of time here. All right, going back to the statements of chapter 4, verses 9 through eleven, I just want you to notice a couple things. In verse eleven, you are worthy. That means you are deserving. That's the essence of the Greek word there. You deserve this. Deserve why or what do you deserve? You deserve the glory. That means to speak well of. It's a it's a, elevate with your words, right? Uh, honor that's respect and, uh, of status and power. The potential to exert your dominion. You're exerting authority. All right. Why would you deserve any kind of worship? What is being stated here is that you deserve that worship. You deserve, you are worthy of it because by you, you made everything and you sustain everything. There's a, the psalmist said it this way. If you remove your spirit, you die. Right? I'm not talking about the human spirit. He's talking about God sustains life. If I take, if I go to the tree, And I take away all of its central sap, the nutrition of the tree, the lifeblood of the tree. What happens to the tree? It dies. That's the same idea. God is in the center of everything. Now, not everything is God, but God sustains life, right? God is in the central core of everything. And when he pulls himself away, it, it, it ceases to exist. This is what he means by he sustains everything. Another writer said it this way, you hold everything together by the word of your power. Wouldn't you love to do that? I'd love that. I'd love to actually clean the toy room and say, now stay as you are, even if the children go in there. Huh? Wouldn't that be fantastic? You see, the ability of God to govern by the authority of his spoken voice is an unheard commodity on this side of eternity, isn't it? We can't do that. I can't go to somebody running a fever, as Jesus did to Peter's mother-in-law, and say, be gone, fever! They would say, have you got another doctor? This guy is really not right. The Savior, God himself, has this sustaining quality about Him. He created it. He, he masterfully made the mitochondria and the ATP mechanisms and the gluconeogenesis and the nucleus with its all chromosomes, and the XY and the, hexa, uh, the helical, helical arrangement of that stuff. I just threw those terms to th- make you think I know what I'm talking about. You see, the point is, is that it's fascinating, and it's on a cellular level, and what you need an electron microscope to visualize, but how about everything else? How about the ecological system? How about the celestial bodies? How about the movement of the stars with regularity? How about the morning and the evening? How about a star that has such high temperatures but doesn't burn up? You see, God created. Now, that's why he's worthy to receive such glory and honor and power. It's the first statement, but let's look at the second statement. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Look at this again. You are worthy to take the scroll. Remember the scroll being that sealed document which was going to bring judgment. Kind of like the title deed where the cost will be paid. So here's the point. He says, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. for you. Now he's going to say why you're worthy. And notice how we get immediately into the work of Jesus Christ. For you were slain. What does that mean? You're dead. You died. You were executed by the plan of God. You have redeemed us. You bought us back by your blood. You spent a price that was not yours to spend. You spent your own life out there. And in so doing, you bought us back. And and, and what did you do? You took us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What does that mean? Let me tell you, when you go to Israel with me, Lord willing, next year, John, We'll go to a assembly in Nazareth. There's a brother there named George and and his wife is Rose Khalil. Several others there. There's Saul. He's from Egypt. There's a few other folks that we love dearly. They're Palestinian believers. What does that mean? They speak Arabic. They also speak English. We love them. There are about 30 of them in this little Nazareth assembly. It's online. You can go to the Nazareth Assembly and Emmaus Correspondence Courses. You can see it. And so we go there, and we're usually around 40, so we over double their numbers. And, and we don't mean to, but, but we kind of have to. So all those who are Arabic-speaking sit on one side, and all the English speakers, that's us, we sit on the other side, and, and, and we'll begin to break bread together. I just, I weep at it. We come together from two different cultures and two different languages and two different people groups and we're coming around one singular person, Jesus Christ, and what we do is we sing the same songs. Now, they're singing in Arabic and we're singing in English and we're both singing Amazing Grace. Why Amazing Grace? Because it's the only one we can really sing together. And if you're like me, you take a step back and you watch what happens. And you hear, I just closed my eyes, and I could hear the sound of one harmonious voice singing a new song, as it were, if I may, to heaven. And I thought, you're brilliant God. You are so brilliant. That you can do one singular thing and you can bring cultures as far apart as headhunters in Indonesia to those who are, are hunting deals in the United States together in one singular person. And the work that he's done and you can give us the kind of unity that is on par with a family that is of a loving dimension of God. How do you do that? There are people in this planet that have companies that spend billions of dollars to try to give cohesiveness to the entire workforce in their company. And guess how successful they are? Not too much. But here God Himself, He comes to this planet, interjects Himself in human life, puts Himself on the cross for you and I, and in so doing, rallies people from Japan, from Korea, from Russia, from Spain, from France, from Bolivia, from the United States, and even Canada. Just kidding. Thank you. And we all come together. And it's like we've been family forever. You don't know how blessed you are. You don't know how great that is. And it's not just so we can get along and share pizza. It's so that we can worship the same God. It's beautiful. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. At the, at the, sorry. At the Tower of Babel. I'm sorry, this is very busy. It's a quote from C.H. McIntosh. He goes, At the Tower of Babel, God gave various tongues as an expression of His judgment. Remember Babel, you know, they're gonna build this tower, this tower, man's way to God to, to undo the things of God, you know, and stand in defiance to Him. And God sent Him, sent them languages which confounded their efforts, and thus we have the people groups and therefore the cultures that we have today. In Acts 2, when He comes and He brings the cloven tongues of fire, and, and they're now hearing people speaking in specific, syntactically related dialects to hear it. They understood it. God is bringing grace, isn't he? Grace. He had to divide by judgment. He brings grace. He brings together. And you and I experience that now. And there's a coming day when all those people with different tongues and tribes and nations, you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be given glory. Why not? Why don't we start today? Huh? That's the privilege we have. Okay, let's move on. I'm out of time. I'm so sorry. But he did say, "Take as long as I wanted." Okay, all right. Verse, uh, verse five, our chapter five, verse eleven and twelve. Look at this one: "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain uh, to receive power, riches, and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing." The key thing I just want you to know is the Lamb is worthy, and it references his being destroyed again. And remember, that was what John saw. It's twice now we heard it. I'm going to talk about the content of their of what they said in just a second. So hang with me there. Notice also in verse 13 and the statements to him who sits on the throne, God and the Lamb receive blessing, glory, honor, glory forever and ever. I want to look at at the uh at the esteem that's given. All right? Let's look at these things and they're combined in verse 12 and 13. Uh, it goes like this. He was. He, they said you should receive power. You you should receive the a full authority to exert your effort, your 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 majesty, your dominion. You should receive riches, blessings. You should give be given all the wealth of the earth. That's what they did with Solomon, right? They they brought him all the wealth of the earth. Queen Sheba brought all the wealth that she had. Wisdom, you, you, should, you should be given all that credit for all the capacities to understand all things. To understand how they work and how they don't work and the practicality of it all. You should have except you should be given all exceptional capability or strength. You should be given all respect and honor and status. You should have, a, always have think that which is spoken well of you. Now I want to ask you a question. Those are uh, an encapsulation of the two statements of 11, or verse 12 and 13. Who's supposed to be giving? Who's supposed to do the giving here? Yes. You and I. We are to be giving the Lord the power. What power do I have? Not very much, but he deserves it. What kind of riches do you have? Not very much, but he's going to get everything. What kind of wisdom do you have? Not very much, but I'm giving you everything that I could think, know, or understand. What kind of strength do you have? Not too much, but I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to give it to you because you're worthy. You deserve all of me. I'm going to give you my honor. Whatever honor I have, it's your honor. I'm going to defer all that respect and status to you. I'm, I'm going to give you the glory. I'm going to speak well of you. Every moment of every day, I'm going to speak well of you. I'm going to think well of you. I'm going to, I'm going to act well of you. I'm going to give you everything that I could possibly do. That's from us. That's what we're supposed to give. Every creature, above, below, or under the earth, We happen to be on the earth. We happen to be in that middle tier, don't we? We happen to be the people group that have been given this particular insight. We happen to be the people of God, the children of God, who actually should be the ones who bestow this, like Gracie did. I just love you more. And I'm going to give you everything I have. I'll close with this because our time is gone. I'm so sorry. There's a great story told by Rex Trogden. Do you know Rex Trogden? He was a missionary to Africa. I've been to Africa a few times, so I, I I kind of I can appreciate what he's talking about. There's a certain mindset there. He said that when they taught them how to break bread, they would have the table and the loaf and the cup and 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 people would want to, out of a spontaneous response to remembering the Savior, just like we should be, they would bring gifts. I mean, why not? This is what he's saying. This is the normal heart response. But they didn't have much to bring. They didn't have money. They had a chicken. And so you'd come into meeting and you'd see a chicken tied to the leg of the table. Wouldn't that do something for the breaking of the bread, huh? You'd, you'd see some other, a loaf of bread or you'd see something else, some fruit. It's all they had. But well, one day a brother came. He literally had nothing. They would put the bread in a basket or fruit in a basket. He brought a basket. And he stood in it. Yeah. And He was saying this. Lord Jesus... I don't have anything else to give you except myself. It's the only thing I've got left to give. It's the only present I can afford. I would like to give you myself. I think that covers glory, honor, dominion, power, all of it. Don't you think? That's what we're supposed to be. I tell you, most of us, we give a portion of ourselves. And then it's a negotiation. Maybe this week it's 75, next week we'll, 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 we'll dial it up to 85. You should be happy with that. I don't think that's what this is about, do you? I think we get so overwhelmed at the majesty and beauty, the dominion of his sac- and his sacrifice for us, that there is no way we hold back anything. Now that... His worship he loves. Father, we come to you this afternoon, or now afternoon, and we thank you that we've had a chance to meditate in the Scriptures. And And when we do this, we, we Lord, I look at my heart, and I don't know, Lord, did you, would you want this kind of crippled, shriveled up, selfish heart? I almost hear the voice from the angel of heaven say, Absolutely. And if it's possible, we would in our imaginary minds come before the table of heaven. We would stand in our own little basket and we'd say, I don't have anything worth offering to you. I'd like to give you myself because you are worthy. Would you make this, Father, the theme of the rest of our days until your Son returns? In Jesus' name.